The book isn't yet written on how Americans place term limits on the U.S. Congress. But when it is, the face of today's guest might be on the cover. Hi, I'm Philip Blumel. Welcome to No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the Term Limits Movement for the week of September 9, 2019. Your sanctuary from partisan politics. Paul Jacob ran U.S. Term Limits, the nation's oldest and largest term limits group, from its inception in 1992 until 1999, becoming the movement's leading voice. Jacob helped citizens in 23 states place limits on their congressional delegations, prompting columnist Robert Novak at the time to call him the most hated man in Washington. Jacob was also at the helm when the Supreme Court of the United States voided those victories in the 1995 split decision, U.S. Term Limits versus Thornton. This week, U.S. Term Limits Field Director Scott Tillman talks to Paul, teasing out some history that, so far, few others except for those who are on the front lines might remember. When exactly did you first get involved in initiatives, I should ask? The first initiative I did was called the Tax Accountability Amendment. It was in Illinois in 1990. And while I was doing it, a friend of mine, Mike Ford from California, would call and we would compare notes. He was working on Prop 140, which was the term limits initiative in California. In 1990, there were three measures, term limits measures on the ballot. There was Prop 140 in California. That got got the most press because, of course, California being the most populous state. Uh, And that was fought tooth and nail by Willie Brown, who was the long-serving Speaker of the House, uh, uh, maybe not so affectionately called the Ayatollah of the Assembly at the time. And uh, Brown raised about $6 million. They ran wall-to-wall television ads against the amendment. Uh, No TV in favor of the amendment. There was a small radio buy to promote Prop 140. And yet, against that onslaught, Prop 141. And that really sent a message around the country. There were two other states that helped send a very strong message in 1990. Colorado, which was the first state to limit its own congressional delegation. They not only limited their state legislature, they also put a provision in that limited their delegation to Congress. And that really touched off the national effort to limit congressional terms. And the other one was Oklahoma, which actually was the first term limits initiative voted on because in the Sooner State, the governor can set the measure at any election. Instead of putting it on the November election, I suspect there were some state legislators who, and uh, federal legislators who encouraged him not to put it on the same election where they were up for a vote. And so they voted on it, I believe, in sometime in September, and all three measures won. And then, of course, U.S. term limits formed in 1992 and really spearheaded 14 states on the ballot. That's the most states to ever vote on a single issue in a single cycle like that. The previous most was, I believe, 11 or 12 states that voted on nuclear freeze proposals, some of them advisory. But this was 14 states, including California, uh, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, very large states, a ton of publicity. And we were fought in a number of different states, a big fight in Michigan, a big fight in Washington state, big fight in Arkansas. Uh, in many of the other states, I think they looked at the polling and said, we can't stop the term limits juggernaut. And uh, we ended up winning in all 14 states. 
the average margin of victory was two to one. And so that really put a ton of pressure on the Congress. And of course, in 1994, we came back with, a, with more states. There were another eight states that uh, passed term limits initiatives. And that really helped spur, you know, Newt Gingrich uh, and Republicans in the Congress who had been out of power for 40 years, endorsed term limits as part of their contract with America. But that was almost entirely because they saw the power of this issue. Uh, there were so many candidates running on it, so many candidates talking about, and these are challengers because in 1994, there were 77 new people who uh, came into the Congress. And they were talking about the people in grocery store parking lots, collecting signatures in the hot sun to put these measures on the ballot. And um, those initiatives were the closest thing in American history to a national referendum. And that national referendum was 14 to nothing for term limits. The Reason Foundation is a libertarian think tank based in Los Angeles, California, and is the publisher of Reason Magazine, Reason TV, The Reason Hit and Run blog, and The Reason Podcast. In last Wednesday's episode of The Reason Podcast, host Nick Gillespie interviewed our own Nick Tombalides. In the wide-ranging 45-minute episode, the two Nicks discussed the theoretical argument for term limits, adverse pre-selection, California, the empirical evidence for the effectiveness of term limits, and, in the portion excerpted here, how the U.S. term limits executive director got involved in term limits in the first place. How did you get interested in this topic and connected with U.S. term limits? I started out as a pretty typical political activist. In college, I worked on campaigns, volunteered, the whole shebang. And after sort of coming of age in the Bush-Obama era, it eventually how, dawned how on- old are, How old are you, if you don't mind I'm 30. Okay. 30. Yeah. It eventually dawned on me, it ain't getting any better. Mm-hmm. My party is pretty much full of crap. The other guys are full of crap. Third parties are broke. <laughs> and I'm busting my ass trying to get these people elected. But once they get in- nothing really changes. You know, I I felt like I was being scammed because I was. Mm -hmm. You had the Tea Party, you had Occupy Wall Street uh, movements with two respective sides. And whether you agree with them or not, they seem to represent a real intellectual debate between more or less government. But most of the politicians who rode those waves, they got elected, they got co-opted, they became part of the machine. So I lost my faith in politicians. Uh, at some point. It was like finding out Santa Claus isn't real. Well, politicians aren't real either, apparently. Right. But, but Santa I'm, Claus also has a unlimited ability to tax and regulate you. So it's kind of yeah. the worst of all. You're not getting any more presents, but you're I'm footing the saying, bill. I'm not saying Santa Claus doesn't have the same platform as a lot of modern politicians. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying if yeah. Santa Claus decided to run for president in 2020, he wouldn't win. I think that's mm-hmm. very possible. Going back to this, I was still concerned about things debt, immigration, privacy rights, mm-hmm. endless war, you name it. I felt called to help in some way, help end the racket, and term limits were a natural opening for me. Part of the reason that I think you had a lot more initiatives, including the term limits initiatives in the 90s, than you had in the 80s and 70s and 60s, when the initiative process was not used nearly as much, is that you really saw at the end of the 80s, the end of the Cold War. And politics became a lot more about Washington and and the state capitol and city hall 
than it was about world, you know, the Cold War and the Soviets. And, and uh, we, we began to focus a little bit more at home. And frankly, people didn't like what they saw. And so they took some action. But if you look back a little further in initiative and referendum, you find that in the teens, uh, the 1920s and 30s, there were a lot of initiatives. The, the 90s was probably the biggest, and I don't know for certain, but I believe it was the biggest number of initiatives of any decade, uh, even since. But there is some ebb and flow. And uh, I was surprised in doing just a little research, even during World War II, you saw initiatives in a number of different states, not at the same level as maybe before, but at a stronger level than during the 60s and the 70s when it seemed like there weren't as many initiatives. Of course, you know, there were some big ones. In 1978, you had Prop 13, uh, which got a ton of play around the country. And really, in many ways, some people have pointed to that as the beginning of Ronald Reagan's campaign and the the momentum that helped carry him to the White House in 1980, which is pretty consequential stuff. But what oftentimes people don't know about Prop 13 is that not only did it win, did it win two to one, did it win against a ton of money, but after it won, it had a tremendous impact, not just in California, but all over the country. There were over 40 states between 1978's election and the 1980 election that passed some sort of tax reform or tax cut in their own state. So it really did spark a tax revolt. And, and sometimes you can look at the sheer number of initiatives, but there are other times where it's the importance of that initiative. And the reason I point that up is because I think term limits is an issue that people can see very quickly is the sort of reform that's not ever going to happen if you don't have the initiative process. That and I shouldn't say not ever, but it's, it makes it much, much tougher to convince legislators to limit their own terms than it is to go convince the people that this is the reform needed. And so the, the initiative process was just an essential element in bringing term limits to the public. A lot of initiatives today seem to be non-organic in how they get their start. There's very big organized lobbies that go out and raise money. But we talk about term limits and term, U.S. term limits being involved with 14 in 92 and 8 additional in 1994. But almost, I think all of them, not almost, I think all of those are initiatives that started at the grassroots level in the states and U.S. terminals came in and assisted them uh, and helped with the organization. This issue uh, just inspires a ton of grassroots involvement. And it is true that in, in most of the cases, there were already initiatives going uh, before U.S. terminals really got engaged. Uh, I worked for a group, Citizens for Congressional Reform, as their term limit project manager back in 91, before I joined U.S. terminals, before U.S. term limits formed. And, uh, and so I was working some of that. And there were certainly times where uh, somebody wanted to get something going, but just didn't have the connections and we would help connect them to other people. There's all kinds of ways that, that these things take shape. But in terms of the idea and the impetus for it, it came from the grassroots. And it was amazing that it seemed like, you know, overnight everybody had the same idea. Let's term limit Congress. 
We spend our lives in a bubble of air. We don't think about it or even notice it until it isn't there. One thinks of the fish when she was asked, hey, how's the water? And the fish replied, what water? After generations of career politicians running Washington, we are so used to its ebbs and flows that it is hard to imagine anything different. When thinking about term limits then, it is easy to imagine how the reform could affect only the careerists who run the show now. But under term limits, not only will the rules be different, the legislators will be different too. In the August 20th episode of The Reason Podcast, host Nick Gillespie asks U.S. Tournaments Director Nick Tavolides about this phenomenon. What is adverse pre-selection and, and why is it important? So adverse pre-selection is a term popularized by Ed Crane, former president of the Cato Institute, to describe a major problem Congress has today, that the fact that it's not representative. And that's based on how the system is designed. Americans who've had success in the private sector might like to serve. They might like to help fix the broken system in Washington, but they don't run because they know it won't have an impact because you need to put in 15, 20 years at least in Congress to have any sort of clout. That means industrious people who refuse to give up their vocations are not going to run. They don't want to spend that much time in DC with so little impact. So the types of people we need to run are not running. Who is running? Folks who happily look forward to a lifetime in politics. And I'll tell you, Nick, those are not the people who are likely to favor uh, limits on government. Term limits was a little different in that it was just popping up everywhere and not just at the state level, as you well know, uh, popping up at the city level. One of the biggest initiatives for term limits was in 1993 when they put it on the ballot in New York City. And, you know, because Congress had been controlled for so many decades by the Democrats, a lot of times Democratic opponents would say, oh, this is a Republican plot. Well, <laughs> you can't win big in New York City and claim it's a Republican plot. It also won in San Francisco and an awful lot of other cities that were you know, very much democratic strongholds. Yes, uh, there's a lot of examples of that. I think the most recent place where it was a statewide passage of term limits was Nebraska in 2002. It was, it was either 2000 or 2002. 2000 or 2002. They had to run it twice. Um, but we are, we're seeing, it, and, and the, the main reason we don't see more of them is because every state that has that process is pretty much passed term limits. The truth is it'd be, on the, it'd be on the ballot and win in other states if they just had the initiative process to be able to do it. I mean, New York, Illinois, and Illinois, they've tried several times, but that process is so limited that every time it gets on the ballot, it's at 75 or 80 percent in the polls, and then it's sued, and they say, oh, no, you can't do it. Um, but the people want to do it. And I, I just wanted to touch on, you mentioned Nebraska and, and said, I think we had to do it twice. And I just wanted to explain the history of Nebraska because it's fascinating and it's, it's somewhat unique in being maybe the worst place uh, in terms of the difficulty in getting term limits passed. In 1992, term limits were put on the ballot in Nebraska. It won with 68% of the vote. It was then sued with people suing saying that we didn't get enough signatures because the Secretary of State and the Attorney General and everybody else, including the author of the amendment that had been made years prior, didn't know what they did and somehow changed the signature requirement. The signature requirement in Nebraska was always the vote for governor. You had to get 10% of that. 
Well, this court decision, which took everybody's by surprise, said, oh, no, that's the wrong number. So even though it was the number that for years everybody had gotten and put things on the ballot and passed them, they pretty outrageously changed that number to be too high. We, had we known, of course, we would have gotten a higher number and threw out a vote of the people. Threw it out after it had been voted on? After it had been voted on, they saying we didn't get enough signatures, even though we got all the signatures that state officials said you had to get. That's pretty outrageous. Don't, you don't see that very often where they throw something out once it's been voted on. Normally, the process requires it beforehand. Yes. In fact, uh, there are some states that say once it's been voted on, you can't throw it out for any signature irregularity because the people have already spoken now. But that was just step one. That was 92. This decision came with six, eight weeks left before the next deadline. They held it for a while. And we decided to heck with it. We're going to try to put it back on the ballot. The folks in Nebraska were gun ho to do it. We thought that we could, could help them do it. And we launched a campaign. I still remember the Secretary of State um, saying that it would take a miracle to get the signatures that quickly. Well, a miracle happened. We got the signatures that quickly. We put it back on the ballot. It won again with 68%. And so we then, uh, it sued again. And in the lawsuit, they say, oh, the people were too confused. They didn't know whether they were voting for Congress or for state legislature. They wanted the limits for Congress, but surely they didn't want them for the state legislature. They threw the second victory in the trash. The Supreme Court ruled that the people were too confused, doesn't count, throw it out. In 1996, there was a retention election for the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court justice who wrote that decision. Never in the history of Nebraska had a Supreme Court justice been defeated for retention. Usually they get 60 something percent retained. People you know, don't pay that much attention to those elections. In 1996, we ran a campaign to deny that judge retention. He was denied retention. He didn't get 60% for retention. He didn't get 50%. In fact, he got 32%, meaning the same 68% voted no. Not only did that mean he was off the court, but the day after the election, a fellow justice announced his resignation in the wake of all this. So, um, it, it had a big impact on their Supreme Court. Uh, just as an aside, I was there years later when there was an effort against Iowa justices on retention, and they were running ads in Nebraska reminding people this wasn't about them. This was about somebody else. So the, the judiciary in Nebraska, I think, got a message that you can't play these kind of games. We then came back in, 19, in, in 2000, I think, or 2002. I think it was 2000 and for the third time passed a constitutional amendment to limit terms in Nebraska. And uh, that one was sued as well, but the court decided there'd been enough and they let that one stand. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, it just again and again, you have huge uh, swerving outside the lines from a legal standpoint, a political standpoint, 
almost anything to stop this issue because they recognize the people love it. It's simple and straightforward. There's no complexity really, but it's a great reform. And, you know, as much as people sometimes, oh, it's just, it's a meat ax approach. The idea of term limits is as old as democracy itself. Aristotle and the ancient Greeks first dealing with democracy supported term limits. Thomas Jefferson said we shouldn't, we shouldn't ratify the Constitution because it didn't specifically have term limits in it. Um, this is, uh, you know, it's an issue that has tremendous support, but you can see the kind of machinations that politicians and unfortunately sometimes judges will do to try to block the issue. Term limits sound good in theory, but where's the evidence? That's what Reason podcast host Nick Gillespie wants to know, and U.S. Tournaments Executive Director Nick Tombalese has the answers. To hear the full August 20th interview, go to reason.com forward slash podcast. Let's talk a little bit about kind of empirical results. How many states uh, in the United States or other countries have term limits for members of their legislatures, and what do the results show? We don't have the complete data on the rest of the world right now. We're actually in the process of compiling that. We're trying to get the most accurate results as possible. I will tell you executive term limits are a lot more common in different countries than, than legislative term limits. But here in America, we've got 15 states that have legislative term limits. All of them were adopted by voters from 1990 onward, and mm -hmm. those referenda were done with no help from the politicians. Those were done through the petition process, with the exception of Louisiana, where it was added to the ballot because they feared the citizens might introduce a petition otherwise with mm -hmm. stronger term limits. So 15 states have it, and the results have been very good. You look at rankings of states based on fiscal health, states with term limits are typically clustered toward the top. I live in Florida, and I think the Mercatus Center Gave, we've had eight-year term limits since 1992. I mean, the Mercatus Center gave Florida its top ranking for fiscal health three out of the four last years, and now we're still in the top five. So states with term limits have a higher average ranking in fiscal health than states without it. You've also seen more competitive elections because definitionally, a, what a term limit does is create more open seats. Mm -hmm. uh, you see more candidates vie for office, and incumbents are not as powerful because they haven't been in office for as long, so it's easier to defeat an incumbent when term limits are present. That's a big deal, right? The idea of open seats, because when you look at races for Congress in particular, the 435 uh, members of Congress around the country, yes, very few seats are open or really contested in any meaningful way. Exactly. Around 90% of all the elections for Congress are either totally uncontested, meaning you have an incumbent with no opponent, the voters are afforded zero opportunity to vote them out, or under contested, where the incumbent does have an opponent, but it's, you know, a gadfly who's put his name on the ballot. He's raised maybe $5,000. Nobody has ever heard of him, and he doesn't really have a chance. Mm -hmm. A very small number of races every two years are contested, and that is because of the power of incumbency. Conversely, when an incumbent decides to retire, you see tons of competition in these races. You see a dozen candidates vying for it in a primary because now they know it's accessible to them. The barrier to entry has come down. Now you can win that seat with a lot less money. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to pull a sword from a stone by dislodging or dethroning a long-term incumbent. You have a real shot at winning. So it stimulates electoral competition 
One of the great fallacies of term limits critics is that term limits somehow inhibit voter choice. When you look at the data, term limits increase voter choice by giving us more options than we've ever had before at the ballot box. And that is true across the board wherever term limits have been enacted. Thanks for joining us again for the No Uncertain Terms podcast. So much groundwork has been laid and so many lessons learned. Let's keep that momentum growing. The action item this week is for every listener to introduce the No Uncertain Terms podcast to one new listener. Who do you know who might want to learn about the movement and take action? Let them know the podcast can now be found on Spotify and nearly every other podcast platform as well. Or just send him or her the link, termlimits.com forward slash podcast. Thank you. We'll be back next week. The revolution isn't being televised. Fortunately, you have the No Uncertain Terms podcast. U.S.T.L. Yeah.